I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. On today's episode, I love gold. But don't look at me. I'm not responsible for any of this. Air Canada has fired back in a lawsuit by Brinks, saying the airline bears no responsibility for the theft of $23.8 million in gold and cash that appeared to have just vanished earlier this year from its facilities at Toronto's Pearson Airport. Plus, putting the her in heritage and the ass in brass, baby. One of Toronto's oldest strip clubs may get heritage designation. So you'll get that story and my story about meeting with the former general manager of Remington's Men of Steel at 6 p.m. on a Wednesday evening prior to it closing. This stretch of young used to be referred to as the Sin Strip, and you'll get some background on what made this part of town so seedy and exciting. That's all coming up on Today in T.O. You can blame Air Canada for a lot of things. Lost luggage, delays, cancellations, poor service, damaged mobility devices, lack of staff, it's too expensive, lost luggage. Wait, did I say that one already? Anyway, what you can't blame Air Canada for is losing 400 kilograms of gold bars and some cash totaling $23.8 million. Well, you can try. So this goes back to April when this precious cargo went missing, and there is a lot of finger pointing going on. So let's try to make sense of it all. Last month, Brinks filed a lawsuit against Air Canada. Now, you know Brinks. I never really thought about what it is they actually do, but according to their website, Brinks is the leading global provider of cash and valuables management, digital retail solutions, and ATM-managed services. In October, Brinks filed the suit alleging that Air Canada breached its contract with the company to transport gold and cash from Switzerland to Toronto and to keep it safe and secure until they could pick it up. I mean, someone did pick it up. Brinks says that someone walked away with the cargo after flashing a phony document at an Air Canada warehouse. The suit claims Air Canada was, quote, negligent and failed to follow through on, quote, appropriate security measures to prevent theft. Now, this gold and money was from a couple of Swiss companies, a precious metals refinery and a retail bank. They contracted Brinks to provide security and logistics for the shipment and to compensate them for any losses. After the stopover at this Air Canada facility, the gold was supposed to go to TD Bank and the cash was headed to Vancouver. According to the filings, Brinks arranged in mid-April for Air Canada to haul the cargo It was delivered at Pearson just before 4 on the Monday, deposited at a glass-walled Air Canada warehouse on-site at 5.50 p.m., and retrieved by this mysterious person who showed up 42 minutes later. Brinks claims that Air Canada didn't have sufficient security measures, no vaults, no cages. They lacked constant surveillance, including CCTV and active human patrols. Brinks added, in the suit that the airline didn't have adequate software safeguards to prevent unauthorized transactions or forgery-proof ID for employees or contractors at the warehouse. That sounds bad. 
Brinks is looking to recoup $23.8 million from Air Canada, including $21.1 million for the 400 kilos of gold and $2.7 million to cover the cash. How did Air Canada respond to this? Well, they basically said, did not. In a statement of defense from November 8th, Air Canada rejected each and every allegation in the Brinks suit, saying it fulfilled its carriage contracts and denied any improper or, quote, careless conduct. The airline says in their statement that Brinks failed to note the value of the haul on the way bill, which is a document typically issued by a carrier with details of the shipment. Now, because Brinks failed to pay an extra fee or make a special declaration of interest in delivery, Air Canada says they're not liable for losses. This, again, according to the Statement of Defense. It also claims and cites the Montreal Convention from 1999, which applies to international flights. Now, this is a multilateral treaty that sort of, I guess, streamlines the rules On the one hand, it protects passengers by introducing a two-tier liability system, and it also outlines what can and can't be considered liability on behalf of the airline. And in this case, again, according to Air Canada, if Brinks did suffer losses, the Montreal Convention would cap Air Canada's liability. We'll pay you $17,000. How does that sound? Now, the Brinks filing argues that it did pay a premium, and the way bills were clearly marked. And they also said they issued a warning on the paperwork that said, quote, special supervision is requested, valuable cargo. The Montreal Convention thus imposes no cap on the sum it can recover from the carrier, according to Brinks. So does this all come down to a postage declaration? We'll keep a close eye on how this all plays out. But one thing is for sure, someone made off with that cash and gold. The shipment is still missing, and a police investigation is ongoing with no arrests so far. Still to come, the city's preservation board is hoping to get a heritage designation for that place, you know, where your mom used to work? Okay, okay, it's a bad joke, but you'll hear a story about the time I almost met Lady Gaga at Toronto's only male strip club. That's next. When I say seedy, do you associate that word with something good or something bad? And I don't mean to be so binary about it, but I do think a little seed makes a city interesting, exciting, and dynamic. I mean, who doesn't want a giddy little thrill at a reasonable price? As long as it's consensual, people are being fairly compensated for their time and effort, I'm down. And do you remember Remington's? This was on Young Street on the east side between Gerard and Gould, not to be confused with Zanzibar. Remington's was Toronto's only male strip club, and it opened in 1991 as a male-only venue, meaning no girls allowed. It wasn't until 2007 when new management took over and they realized, hey, women like to have fun too. And so they started allowing them in to watch. And I don't know what else you might get up to. Most of what I learned about strip clubs, I learned from Chris Rock's 1999 spoken word track, No Sex in the Champagne Room. 
which also taught me a lot about astrological signs. Now, just before Remington's closed, in the fall of 2018, I got a special tour from the general manager at the time. Now, before I go any further, Toronto does have a bylaw that prevents any new strip clubs from opening in the city. So when Remington's was forced to close amid rising rents and developments, it was truly the end of an era. Young Street used to be referred to for decades as the Sin Strip, lined with massage parlors, racy movie theaters, sex shops, clubs, and flashing neon lights. I remember it was a Wednesday in late August around 6 p.m. and I stood outside of Remington's Men of Steel with my little audio recorder and a burly-looking security guard looked at me puzzled. Hey, we're not open yet. Can I help you? And I replied, oh, yeah, I'm here to meet the owner um, for an interview uh, for a podcast. And he took me inside. And inside was a bar. Booths and tables lined the walls. There was a stage across the other side of the room with three or maybe four shiny silver poles. There were draped velvet curtains, a lot of mirrors, and that old bar smell. A mix of booze, sweat, and the strong but not strong enough cleaning products used to try and get rid of those first two odors. We then went into the lower level. And down here, it was a more intimate space. There was more pleather, more booths more stage, and the GM of Remington's Dave Auger and I sat in his messy little strip club office with a very noisy air conditioner. I had to ask him to turn it off for a few minutes while I recorded our chat, and I thought he might expire right in front of me. It was hot. Now, this whole interview happened while the strip club was closed, and as I had never darkened the door of Remington's before, I didn't know what it was like when it was full of people. So Dave invited me to their TIFF party, which would also serve as their big closing jam. I was down, but he said one more thing that made me think I had to be at this Remington's send-off. He said, you know, I heard Lady Gaga, who's a big supporter of Remington's, might be there. How iconic is that? So I went to this party. And I've been to strip clubs before where the dancers were women, but never men. And it was a whole vibe. I saw a lot of dong, but no Lady Gaga, unfortunately. And that was like five years ago. And you know what's there now? Not a huge condo building like was proposed, but a big gaping hole, which I don't know, kind of fitting. And when I think of strip clubs, I think fondly of Remington's. I think of Danny's in Hanover, purely because of the name. I think of the palace in my hometown of Pickering. I think of Jumbo's Clown Room in East Hollywood, which has been around since 1970 and is more like a rockin' dive bar. And the dancers are like emo acrobats that are amazing but can't be bothered. I think of Montreal. They have over 50 strip joints, peep shows, and parlors. I think of Jilly's, now the Broadview Hotel, where I got married. (laughs) I think of Fillmore's at the corner of Dundas and George Street, an absolute relic with a sense of humor, as you can see by their marquee signs, lights, camera, plenty of action, or some burn about the Leafs or Blue Jays. I think of Zanzibar, one of the Sin Strip holdouts, a landmark that's been running for 63 years. And I think of the Brass Rail 
where the last time I walked by, a couple of weeks ago, actually, a group of young boys were messing around out front, and they asked my husband, hey, man, can you get us in there? You know, as kids do. To which he replied, as kids do, sure, my mom just started her shift. Now, I've never been to the brass rail. To be honest, it always kind of surprises me. It's like, here's where people line up for Chick-fil-A, and then a stroll further south, you hit Toronto's premier gentleman's club, the Brass Rail Tavern. A little further south, and there's Bulk Mine, where you can find rare British candy. But back to the Brass Rail. It opened in 1948, and in those days, it was a family-friendly joint with food and live entertainment. But not that kind. Not yet. In the late 60s, early 70s, that began to change, and in the 1980s, it went full frontal as a strip club. Currently, there is a proposal to turn the buildings at 699 and 707 Young into a 64-story residential tower. But it was through this process that they discovered that underneath the bright photos of women in bathing suits is the original facade in a Romanesque revival style. And so there's a push to designate the Brass Rail Tavern as a heritage property, essentially telling them to take it off. Now, Stefan Novakovich is senior editor of Azure Architect magazine. What would a heritage designation mean? First of all, I think the heritage designation is a way of, you know, ideally helping to preserve the entire building from getting demolished, but at the very least to preserve some element of its facade and, you know, probably to include a plaque on site. And uh, But I know it's kind of weird that, you know, when we talk about architectural heritage and we write about, uh, when I write about architecture as a journalist, I'm not usually writing about, um, you know, Young Street strip joints. There's nothing sexier than a plaque. I can certainly see where the city is coming from because I think they're taking a really sort of a view of heritage that it's not just about you know, the some inherent beauty of the building or even its its age, but part of the social history that happened there. And even when we talk about that Supreme Court case, you know, that has some history about, uh, you know, uh, how it helped shape Canadian culture. And, you know, it really came at an era when we were talking about sexual expression and liberation. And I think the legality of lap dancing plays a role in that. Ah, yes. The Supreme Court of Canada ruling in 1999 that overturned an appeal that stated lap dances were indecent. Now, I don't think we should tear down the brass rail because then we'd be tearing down a part of ourselves. And this really isn't so much about what happens inside the walls of the brass rail. It's about preserving Toronto's history, the good, the bad and the sexy. Here's Stefan again. I think sometimes when we can look back at all the things we've demolished in Toronto or gotten rid of, they seem to have no value. Like even the distillery district for a long time, we thought, okay, that's just a bunch of place where, uh, where people were just brewing stuff and getting into fights. And then, you know, decades, centuries later, all of a sudden we see it in the historical context and has value. And, you know, if I think about what, what would we think 50 years from now, we'll probably think oh, it's pretty cool that they kept that as a part of history if it's maintained there. I just have to say that from here on out, I'm only going to refer to the distillery district where they're now hosting a very popular Christmas market as the place where people were just brewing stuff and getting into fights. Amazing. Now, next steps for Brass Rail. It's still in the very early stages, but the recommendation by the Preservation Board will head to the city's planning committee for approval, and they meet at the end of the month. If that's approved, it'll be presented to city council, and then they'll have to approve it too. 
We'll keep our eyes on this for you, but <clears throat> those eyes are up here. And wouldn't you love just for a moment to go back in time to experience what Young Street was like during its more sinful era? For some history on the strip, I'd like to bring up to the stage our next act of the evening producer, Mr. Glenn Bragonier. Oh, and it was a sinful era for sure. In fact, if you were to walk down Yun Street between Girard and Dundas, somewhere between the late 60s and late 70s, well, you just wouldn't believe your eyes. But before we dive headfirst into hedonism, let's start off with something a little closer to the beginning. You see, every few decades, Young Street would go through a massive transformation in line with the times. During the Roaring Twenties, it was largely a strip where you can go to see moving picture houses or even catch a vaudeville show. Then in the mid-40s, after the Second World War, deep in the jazz era, instead of theaters or stages, it was more along the lines of jazz clubs and cocktail bars. And then came the 60s with the free love movement largely accredited to hippies. And the strip changed once again from musical performances to a, let's say, more promiscuous style. In 1969, and I'm not making that up, that's just when things lined up, Young Street shifted to a more adult-friendly atmosphere between Gerard and Dundas, where once there were cocktail bars and jazz clubs, there was now adult theaters, peep shows, adult-themed literacy, and strip clubs. And then in 1971, quote, body rub parlors, or massage parlors, began to proliferate the four-block strip. It even became semi-public knowledge that ladies of the evening would hang out on certain corners looking for potential johns. And so, the Sin Strip was officially born. But as one could suspect, when things go this way, another group found that the evolution of Yun was an affront and a sign that Toronto was slipping into urban decay. This group was largely led by religious and conservative parties who argued that the permissiveness of our culture had gone too far. But aside from some bickering and minor protests, nothing really changed. Until the summer of 1977, that is. That summer, the body of a young 12-year-old boy was found murdered on the roof of a body rub parlor. And then things took a quick and violent turn. Within a matter of weeks, police and city inspectors held dozens of raids and blitzes to clear out the four-block stretch of Sin. And by October of 1977, a vast majority of the sex-themed shops, theaters, bookstores, and massage parlors were forcibly shut down permanently and pushed off the strip, with only a few locations holding out, such as Zanzibar and the famous Brass Rail. So does the rail stand out as an odd addition to Young Strip these days? Well, yeah, for sure. But just remember that at one point, Toronto essentially had a red light district and locations like the Brass Rail, some of the only signs that any of it ever existed. Ah, I remember my first visit. The service was exquisite. Okay. Okay. I'll stop quoting Simpsons at you for now. Remember, this podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier and David Spargala, Chris Dunner and Andrew Dernford, our advisors to the show. I can't promise anything, but I can tell you that next week's episode will have much less dong and probably more trees as we dig into the latest with Ontario Place and the Ontario government. In the meantime, 
Share this pod with a friend, will ya? Tell them that you found a great way to stay up to date on some Toronto news, and it only takes about 20 minutes per week to get caught up. Join me again on Wednesday. Enjoy the next seven days, and we'll chat again soon. Bye-bye.